On August 21, 1992, U.S. federal agents went to a remote cabin near Naples, Idaho, hoping to arrest Randy Weaver, who lived in isolation with his family. What followed was an intense shootout, an 11-day standoff, and a government cover-up of their own incompetence. Today on HPH, we're taking a look at that story and beginning a journey that will eventually take us to the largest domestic terrorist event in U.S. history. Grab a drink, check your bushes for the feds, and then enjoy this episode of 100 Proof History titled Ruby Ridge, A Hill to Die On. This is 100 Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Welcome in, 12-year-olds. 100 Proof History. Hey. I'm your main host, Greg. I am your sexy host, Chris, but I shouldn't say that to 12-year-olds. I am just... We're going with a more aggressive format. I'm, I'm just more of an adult. I'm just a grown-up. You can trust me. Not... Don't... You know, don't let the fact that I drive a panel van, you know, and I like to hand out candy to strangers, don't let that sway you at all. I'm not a pervert in that regard. Anyway... <laughs> uh, how's the weather down there in that hole, Chris? <laughs> I don't know. That you dug yourself. <laughs> dig out. Dig upward. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> well, Greg, I don't know if you know this. We have received several emails this week wanting to know one specific thing. Several listeners want to know this. And so we're going to introduce a new, very important segment. Okay, you ready? No. But continue. Okay. All right, let me get my announcer voice. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the award-winning number one segment on 100 Proof History, are Greg and Chris in the studio together. Here's your host, Greg from 100 Proof History, to tell us, are Greg and Chris in studio together. Take it away, Greg. No. Thank you for listening to our Greg and Chris Together in the studio, the award-winning number one segment of 100 Proof History. We'll see you next week when you'll find out our Greg and Chris in the studio together. Thank you! Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, that was very enlightening. That's why we have you as the main host. Very thought-provoking. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know? Yeah. It answers a lot of questions. Yes. Or, you know, one. <laughs> yeah, but that's the that's the hot-button issue today in this in this country, you know? <laughs> A lot of stuff going on, but everybody just wants to know that one thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what uh, this first half of 2020 is all about. <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, tell us what we're talking about today. Today, we were talking about Ruby Ridge and the siege on said ridge. It's a very interesting story. It's kind of true crimey. We do that from time to time, lean into the true crime, but it leads us down this road to a, a major historical event in U.S. history. So, we're, we're going to take this first story, tell you all about it, get you all upset. Next week, we'll get you more upset. And third week, we'll we'll bring it all home and tie it together. So, yeah, it is like it's three separate stories, but each one of them leads into the next sort yeah. of thing. Right. That's why we're not doing like a part one, part two, part three, because they are three distinct things with distinct characters with no interrelation between them character wise. Right. But it is kind of a, a huge overarching narrative that forms the basis for all three stories. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, it's all they're all tied together, but not tied together. It's a weird thing, but yeah, you'll get it once we finish. And 
hopefully you you stick it out and learn about some uh, some government fuck ups. It's like a Chinese finger trap, you know. Stick it in both ends, mm-hmm. and it's like oh, it's tied together, but it's not really tied together. Oh, you know, it's just nice. the tension. I was wondering where you're going with that, but now I get it. Yeah, good. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You stick it in both ends, mm-hmm. 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 and then you're just kind of you're trapped. Yeah. It's like a little love triangle Chinese finger trap. You know? Yeah. One end is biting down, which you know, is kind of my thing. And the other end, you know, it's just, uh, it's got the weird suction thing going on. It's not really used to the, uh, that. It's like a plant, like a penis fly trap. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I apologize for that <laughs> awful, awful joke. Chris, what are you drinking today? Today, sir, I am having. Bullet Frontier Whiskey, 10-year whiskey, the barrel strength version of that. Oh. And this ties in because you have the Frontier on which Randy Weaver lived and this all happens. And also barrel strength because if Randy Weaver had gone with full barrel strength, none of this story would have happened. But uh, he decided to saw it off. And here we are, man. Here we are. And you're not even going to mention the bullet part of it? Oh, yeah. There's bullets and stuff. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) really thought that was where you were going. <laughs> I'm also drinking it in old-fashioned, because history is old-fashioned, as we all know. Uh, Greg, what are you having today, sir? I'm having Booker's. It is a delicious bourbon. Mm-hmm. 124 proof. I'm drinking it because our main character of this story, Randy Weaver, he uh, he broke the law. Yeah. And they, they really went out of their way to throw the Booker's at him. <laughs> <laughs> Go fuck yourself, listener. <laughs> Well, Greg, we need to remind our listeners that uh, if they go to our website right now, hunterproofhistory.com, they can enter our giveaway. And this is the last week they'll be able to do that before we give away that sweet-ass H.H. Holmes print in uh, enamel pens. So go to our website, hunterproofhistory.com, and check it out. Maybe think about joining the Patreon where you can get some bonus entries. Okay, you said we needed to do it, so go ahead and do it. Uh, well, I... Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, yes, but also yeah. you can get our weekly bonus episodes, The Hangovers. Oh, yeah. Those are so much fun. Now, Greg, do you want to tell them about our source today, or should I? Or Does anybody care? Does anybody read anymore? Probably not, but I'll go ahead and tell them. Okay. Our main source for this episode was Ruby Ridge by Jess Walter. Jess is a dude, by the way. Yeah, so save your emails, horn dogs. Don't you go assuming. Yeah. They're reading it and they're like, oh, this book's really good for a woman. That's sexist. Don't do that. <laughs> just, just read it. It's a, It actually is. It's a fantastic you book. You 12-year-olds and your humor. Yeah. That we also indulge in quite a bit, and that's the reason you love us so much. No. No? No, Chris. It's for something I can't explain, but it can't <laughs> be that. We've still got to figure it out. Uh, let us know in the comments, 12-year-olds, why you love us. Ask your mother first to get on the internet. Boom. <laughs> yeah, also ask her why she loves us. You yeah, know what I'm saying? What's she wearing right now? Tell her I'll see her tonight at the Jazz Milf Bar. Mm. <clears throat> <laughs> Tell her to wear that sexy number, eh? Yeah. And she'll be like, what do you think I wear that's sexy? And then all of a sudden this thing goes in a completely different direction. And, uh, <laughs> you know, don't tell us that story. We don't want to be... You know, testifying later on about all the things that happened in your household. I think we've stalled enough, Gregory. Are you ready to tell the story of Ruby Ridge? I cannot wait, Christopher. All right, let's get into this poor, innocent, sweet puppy dog. It'll make sense later. 
Randy Weaver was born on January 3, 1948, in Iowa. By all accounts, he had a fairly normal Iowa childhood with a family that was deeply religious but often explored different denominations. When he was 20, the country was balls deep in the Vietnam War, but Iowa was staunchly conservative, and Randy decided it was time to join up for the fight. Randy was sent to Fort Bragg, where he trained to brag about things. He's like, look at me. I got a real nice car. Like This other guy's like, my car is nicer. Oh, yeah? My car has a cigarette lighter and that little window that opens so you can smoke out the side. Motherfucker. You win. You are champion of Fort Bragg. Anyway, that's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) He trained to become a member of the Green Beret Special Forces team. He was mainly a construction equipment operator, but he did qualify as an expert with the M14 rifle and as a sharpshooter with the M16. He was promoted to sergeant and was all set to go fight. But the U.S. government was under serious political pressure to end the war, so Randy was never deployed overseas. In 1971, Randy was honorably discharged from the military. He returned to Iowa, and that is where he met Vicki Jordanson. And he pulled up in his car, and he's like, Check out my vent windows. I can smoke through these. She's like, panties on the floor. Boo! <laughs> Vicki was born and raised on an Iowa farm. She was attractive and strong-willed, which drove away the Iowa boys because they were like, what the fuck? Is this woman speaking an opinion? Nope, not marrying her. Unacceptable. She was 22 when Randy pulled up in his red Mustang to ask her out, and no shit, by Iowan standards, she was a decrepit old maid that might not ever find love. Does her womb even work anymore at 22? Ugh, so used up and gross. It's like a potato just started growing (laughs) vines. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, got a little too old. Yep, that's what vaginas do. They grow vines when they get old. Uteruses, Chris. Oh. I need to give you an anatomy lesson. <laughs> Says the guy saying that uteruses grow vines <laughs> when they're old. <laughs> oh, I thought that was an invite. I was like, oh, I'll bring the red wine. <laughs> All right, give me that lesson. <laughs> Randy and Vicky were married in November of 1971 and moved to Cedar Falls, Iowa, where Randy planned to use his GI Bill funds to go to college. He had seen some pretty fucked up stuff in the army, and he wanted to fix it from the inside. He planned to join either the Secret Service or the FBI. That's uh, how I feel sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I see like a crack addict, homeless lady, mm-hmm. and that's my first thought. I want to f- fix that from the inside. <laughs> it's like that Nine Inch Nails yeah. song. So we go and get a pay-by-the-hour motel, and mm-hmm. I perform miracle healings. Oh. I don't ever know if it works. You know, I, yeah. I leave them. <laughs> I'm sure it does. I have faith that it, it helps them. <laughs> well, in 1976, they'd have their first child, a daughter named Sarah. Randy and Vicky were both obsessive types, and they threw all of their energy into whatever they believed in the most at the time. They tried to sell Amway. Which is a multi-level marketing for those that don't know. I almost fell for this when I was 18, by the way. Oh, yeah? Amongst other things, but do tell. Oh, no, it's just someone tricked me into going to one of these meetings, and I'm like, holy shit, I can make hundreds of thousands of dollars just selling cleaner products? That's fantastic. And I tried to enlist my parents. My dad's like, you're a fucking moron. Oh, you're not even kidding? No. I, oh, I, I thought this was no, part of our character. actually happened, no. <laughs> oh, you idiot. Yeah, he called me a moron, but you know what? Nothing gets stains out better than Amway Cleaner. Listener, if you will, hit me up in the comments and I will, uh, you know, I can sell it, you can sell it. It's so easy. It sells itself. Just uh, just let me know. 
you too could be driving a red Corvette. I mean, it's a lease, and I can't afford the payments, and I really need you guys to sign up. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Randy fell in love with sports cars and spent all of his money buying them and fixing them up. They both just knew that the U.S. currency system was bound to fail, so they started collecting silver. Then they became obsessed with the end of the world. Because they had all that silver. Makes sense. You gotta think about it. It does. It does make complete <laughs> sense. It was 1978 when Vicky discovered a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. This book took stories from the Old Testament and applied them to modern 1970s events and came to the conclusion that everyone was living in the end times. Vicky and Randy began to believe that all credit cards contained the mark of the beast, the number 666. The time was coming when Christians would be hunted down, and the only way to stay safe was to move to a mountaintop in the wilderness and stockpile supplies. Well, this last part, the part about moving to a mountaintop in the wilderness and stockpiling supplies, that came from Vicky, who said she would have visions while taking baths that contained messages from God detailing great violence in a cabin on the mountaintop. So here's something I never understood. Mm -hmm. You know, you have these religious extremists, the whole good versus evil thing. Everybody's about to get raptured and mm -hmm. go to heaven. Why do you care about dying? Like, if you truly believe this shit, yeah. what's the point in staying behind in like a wasteland of an earth, just holding on for, for life when... I don't, it's all temporary, and you know that you're going to yeah. heaven for an eternity and all that. It never made sense, right? No, it doesn't. And it doesn't make sense in this case, because she envisions the cabin and the great violence. So why the fuck go to the cabin? Like, I, no, I don't want to hang out at the violent cabin. Like, oh, but it, God's telling me. I don't know. It's like the old meme of Jesus knocking on the door. And he says, knock, knock. And they say, who's there? Jesus, let me in. Well, what if we, why should we let you in? Because of all of the horrible shit I'll do if you don't let me in. You know, stuff like that. Like, ugh. Never seen that meme. Well, you're not traveling in the right circles, Greg. I suppose not. The Weavers began to preach in their small town, and they actually had a few followers who bought into their tales of Old Testament destruction. But eventually these people would realize there was also a thing called the New Testament. Look at that. Which pretty much negated everything the Weavers were preaching. Huh. Ah, oh, the world's gonna end. Ah, oh, every God fucking hates you. Like, if you do one thing, he's gonna fucking destroy all living beings on this planet. And then Jesus shows up, and he's like, hey, really care for you guys. Like you a whole lot. Just be nice to each other. I got you, bros. Give yeah. me some nucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, ah, oh, that's pretty boring. That's bullshit. No, give us the violence. That's what we're here for. The violence and the incest. That's the Old Testament way. Which kind of makes you wonder, like, how are they Christian? Uh, they were barely Christian, and we'll get into that in a second. I do have questions about what they thought it would happen. Okay, they're going this cabin, the world's ending. So, uh, are they going to repopulate the Earth? Do they need help? That's the only question I have. You know, <laughs> hey, what's up, Vicky Weaver? Hit us up in the comments. <laughs> Ooh, she can't, and we'll tell you why in a second. Mm-hmm. It probably doesn't have internet access because she lives in a cabin, safe and sound. That's probably all it is. Yep. Well, around the same time, the Weavers had their second child, a son named Sam. So they said, fuck it, let's move to the mountains. Vicky's dad, David, thought this was a pretty terrible idea, mainly because he thought Randy was a goddamn moron. 
David would argue with Randy, and any time Randy got cornered into a position where he had obviously lost the argument, he'd shout out something ridiculous like, Someone ought to kill the Supreme Court justices! Or, and I have to use a fake voice here, guys, so Greg doesn't take this out of context, or Wolf Dick doesn't use it for something. The Holocaust never happened! Also, David knew that Randy wasn't mechanically inclined and would struggle to live in isolation. In fact, he assumed they'd all starve to death. Grandpa of the fucking year. Randy and Vicky became more and more extremist. They believed that the government was controlled by the Illuminati, which itself was controlled by the Jews. The most persecuted group in the history of the world. In power. I've always wondered that, like... <laughs> yeah, how do you get there? Like, they're they're coming for their revenge? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is that what it is? Yeah. Like, somehow, they got control, mm-hmm. suddenly. Yes. I, I, and now they're in control of everything. Yeah, out of nowhere. Well, Vicky and David would later say the United States was run by the Zog, the Zionist-occupied government. Shortly after their third child, Rachel, who was born in 1983... They sold their house and earned $20,000 in profit. They bought a moving truck and headed for Idaho. They had no plan or place to live, but God had told Randy they would have somewhere to live by September 7th, and wouldn't he know it, after bouncing around and bitching that the land was too expensive or owned by the Zog Forest Service, on September 6th, they found 15 acres near Naples, Idaho, for $7,500. The land was on a rocky hill, known as as Ruby Ridge. So this kind of reminds me of our uh, our Donner Party series, which happened 130 fucking years before this story, in which they just kind of set out, and they don't have any plan. Like, uh, yeah, no, it's fine. We'll find something when we get there. You know? And they head to mm-hmm. I- Idaho. And it's amazing that they found something the day before God said they their, their deadline was. It's like, huh, <laughs> it's crazy how that worked out for them, right? So lucky, man. There's just, like, no chance there's a bunch of self-fulfilling prophecies in their whole story, right? No, 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 <laughs> no, man. This is all real shit. Yeah, this is all gonna happen. Uh, by the way, around this point, Vicki Weaver decided that the world is gonna end about three years after they moved, which was in 1986. And everyone knows the world ended in 1986. We'll see you guys next week when we talk about the end of the world. <laughs> This remote corner of Idaho was home to religious extremists and racists, and Randy and Vicky soon fell right into that way of thinking, too. They became more aligned with a religion known as Christian identity, which held that white Americans were the lost tribe of Israel, and that God was a just the biggest fan of segregation. Just, you know, blacks, Jews, whites, they shouldn't hang out together. They start talking, right. sharing ideas, and love and shit. God doesn't like that. And, uh... Greg, they also believe that the African, or African-Americans, were descendants of dark angels that had impregnated women with 50-foot giants. It, a lot of this type of shit, you can see where it comes from. Yeah. You know? It's like a weird hybrid thing of like some racist Christian Mormonism, which Mormonism was racist in itself at the beginning. But, but this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, uh, hey, this is a good time to shout out our listener. I don't remember that listener's name. They sent us an email about uh, being a 13-pound baby, because you asked me last week like how big of a baby I was. Oh, that was Aiden. Aiden, okay. Aiden said they were a chunky baby at 13 pounds. 
also said, I feel bad for my mom. It wasn't a C-section. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Tell her to not go to the jazz bar. Not interested. I'm still down. Send me some pics, Aiden. Just let me know. <laughs> the Weavers built a cabin on their land and began to live a modest life. It would take a while for them to get running water or electricity. In the meantime, they took in a 15-year-old homeless kid named Kevin Harris, who would stay with the Weavers off and on over the next nine years. They also made several friends, but would often wind up having a falling out over their racist views. Oh, that Richard Pryor's just the funniest. What the fuck did you say? <laughs> you know, just that's how it take. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. No. Jeez. Our main source goes through each one of these relationships. It's always funny. It's like, oh yeah, they were real good friends. They're hanging out. They had se- several views that were in you know, line with each other, and then they had this slight disagreement, and they're like, "Those bunch of Jew loving N word commies, bastard." You know, all this just. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was. It was rough, and. uh yeah, that's all I got. It was rough. It's just they just lost every fucking friendship they had. These were not nice people. I guess that's what I'm getting at. They're they are they assholes. Definitely were not. They were assholes. Well, one of these feuds led to an angry neighbor writing a letter to the FBI saying that Randy and Vicky were planning on killing President Ronald Reagan. It was all bullshit, and the FBI quickly found that out after interviewing the Weavers, but it confirmed to them the government was out to persecute them. Randy felt overwhelmed and needed to find somewhere that he could feel like he belonged, like Cheers, the bar, except worse. Yeah, with, uh, like, swastikas hanging on the walls. <laughs> yeah. Since he was a racist, he turned to the anti-Semitic, white supremacist group, the Aryan Nation. The Aryan Nation had been created by a former engineer named Richard Butler. Dick Butler. True. He just polishes dicks. Suck it, Dick Butler. <laughs> The group had settled in the Northwest and had began to grow. By the early to mid-1980s, they were the main target of federal law enforcement agencies. In 1983, a man named Bob Matthews decided it was time for the Aryans to overthrow the Zog. He formed a group known as The Order and immediately launched into a crime spree. First, they stole $369 (laughs) from an adult bookstore then they robbed a bank in Seattle and followed that up by stealing $500,000 from an armored car. They would later take $3 million from another armored car in California. They bombed a synagogue in Boise. They killed a snitch. Then they murdered liberal Jewish talk show host Alan Berg in Denver. The FBI didn't know any of these crimes were connected until 1984 when a member of the order was caught with a fake $10 bill and ratted out everyone. God. How does your anti-government conspiracy fall apart over fake ten fucking dollars when you've stolen three point five million dollars? Skip guy a tenner, and you're still out and about. Might show you the type of people that are into these sort of things, Chris. Morons. In December of 1984, the FBI tracked Bob Matthews to Washington State. They surrounded his house, at which point Matthews opened fire on the federal agents. After 36 hours of exchanging gunfire, the FBI launched three flares into the house, hoping to draw Matthews out. He stayed inside and burned to death in his bathtub. Hmm. So fire doesn't make people come running out when you have them surrounded by federal agents? Hopefully it doesn't come up again in history or, you know, like next fucking week when we talk about something else. (laughs) (laughs) The Aryan Nation then became the top target of both the FBI and the ATF. But neither agency communicated with each other. In fact, 
they viewed their operations as a competition. And this was actually commonplace until after 9-11. Yeah. Hell, it was one of the reasons 9-11 was able to come to fruition from such a simple plan. Like These agencies straight up did not talk to each other because each wanted to claim the glory for you know all the capers they thwarted sort of thing. Yeah, 9-11 was completely, I don't say completely, but mostly preventable. But they didn't want to share intelligence in between agencies. So it was, and I'm sure one day we'll do a 9-11 episode where we talk about that. Well, both the FBI and the ATF flooded Aryan Nation gatherings with undercover agents and informants. There were multiple occasions where three people would be in a room planning a crime, and two of them would be undercover informants who wound up snitching on the other undercover informant. In 1986, Randy Weaver went to the Aryan Nation's World Congress in Boise, Idaho, with a friend named Frank Cumnick. <laughs> At the Congress, Frank and Randy met a badass biker dude named Gus Magisono. In January of 1987, the men met again in Sandpoint, Idaho, to discuss potential crimes designed to raise funds to fight Zog. Of course, Gus was really a 39-year-old private investigator named Kenneth Fadale, who was working undercover for the ATF. Fedele wasn't actually an agent or a member of the Aryan Nation that had flipped. He agreed to work undercover for the shits and giggles of it. He almost got the shits when Frank Kumnick pointed a gun at his head and scanned him with a stud finder to try to find any hidden microphones. A stud finder. Like, you you put that on fucking drywall to find wooden 2x4 studs in walls. But this dude's like... Hey, <laughs> you got me. Hey. <laughs> hey, I am a stud. Hey. I'm a stud. Talk about being cool under pressure. Gus Magiano. Uh, hey. He just that double Fonzie thumb up. Maggie Sono, but Whatever. close enough. Uh, it's not my <laughs> job to remember his fake name. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny, though, if he didn't even remember his fake name. I'm <laughs> Gus Magiano. And they're like, on your membership application card, it says Maggie Sono. Yeah. Oh, the A and the S are right next to each other on the keyboard. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just leans into it. <laughs> he pulls out one of those foil takeout containers of spaghetti and meatballs. Just, <laughs> <laughs> pulls a packet of black cats out from his pocket, lights them, throws them in a corner. <laughs> 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 When he's done, they were like, what were we even talking about? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Probably blacks or Jews or yeah, something. Yeah, Zog. Fucking Zog, am I right? <laughs> now, in, in in the real story, when he's he's sitting in the car with these two guys, Kumnik <laughs> reaches out with this the, the stud finder and like barely scans like his arm. And Fatal is like reaching down to grab the pistol on his ankle. He's like, oh shit, they're going to fight me out. Because he was wearing a wire. Yes. But the guy, he's like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, watch. And he scans his own pocket where his glasses are, and it goes off. He's like, ha see, it detects wires. And he does. He does kind of change the subject. He's like, oh, that's fucking cool, man. Way to go. Here's some spaghetti and garlic nuts. And he's like, hey! <laughs> you know? And then he never scans him again. But yeah, uh, it did freak him the fuck out. Well, as Chris said, you know, at this first meeting, Cumnick didn't find Fatal A's wire. But, of course, this incident would understandably lead Fatal Aid to record fewer meetings in the future. Fatal Aid quickly realized that Frank Cumnick was a goddamn moron. Cumnick's big plans for overthrowing the government included jamming all the bank locks in town with super glue or messing up people's TV reception, or 
cutting power lines. His biggest, most dastardly idea was to burn the local fields of hops, which were used by Anheuser-Busch to make Budweiser beer. Oh, my God. It's seize the means of production, <laughs> not destroy the means of production, you dumb fuck. And he, like, reaches into his jacket, and he pulls out this this stuff, and Fado's like, oh, my God, is that shit? And he's like, no, 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 it's, it's fake. It's rubber. I'm going to lay it in the road, and people are going to be like, oh, <laughs> oh, my God, there's shit in the road. Let's overthrow the government. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth Fadalay would eventually turn his sights on Randy Weaver, but for the time being, he left Sandpoint, Idaho, dejected because he thought he was going to be catching criminal masterminds, not some racist Dennis the Menace. Who was blonde-haired and blue-eyed, I'm just saying. When Vicky and Randy had left Iowa, she had predicted that the world would end after about three and a half years. When that day passed, she seemed to soften up a little and the family settled into a quieter life. Her family visited them often and helped out with the cabin. Vicky's dad, David, helped Randy build a small shack outside of the cabin to use as a guest house, but also for a place for Vicky to live while she was menstruating, because God had told her she was unclean during this time and needed to be away from her family. In 1987, Randy attended a meeting of a human rights task force that showed a video detailing the evils of the Aryan nation. Randy stood up, told them that the Jews were running the world, and white people weren't the only racists. Flawless logic. It's a ballsy move to stand up at a meeting of a human rights council and say, Hold on, I got a problem with all these human rights you're giving people. Let's slow things down here. Yeah, I'm a piece of shit, but there are other pieces of shit. So maybe you should think about that, Mr. Zog, you know, Zionist <laughs> operative. That spring, he decided to run for county sheriff as a Republican. His platform was instantly dissolving the sheriff's office as soon as he was elected. To campaign, he handed out get-out-of-jail-free cards. <laughs> 1,500 people voted in the primary. Randy got only 102 votes. So close! Yeah, he almost made it. In 1989, Randy and Kenneth Fadale reconnected. Remember, he was the private investigator that was working undercover for the ATF. Well, the ATF was looking to take down some white supremacists Randy knew in Montana that they suspected of gun running. Randy wasn't real big on introducing the man he knew as Gus with those gun runners, but, according to the ATF, Randy was broke and did tell Gus he was willing to sell some sawed-off shotguns, which is a felony. No! What happened next depends on who you ask, or who you believe, because Fadale wasn't recording this conversation. Fadale says Randy showed him a shotgun and said he could cut it down. Fadale then pointed to the barrel and said, about here. The ATF informant said it was a question like, oh, you're going to cut it about here. But Randy would later say it was an instruction like, okay, cut it here so it's extra illegal. The difference being, if it was an instruction, like Randy said, then it could be considered entrapment. Yep, and then Catherine Zeta-Jones shows up. She does that weird crawl through the laser thing. The butt, the yeah. butt thing under the red laser? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> oh, man. oh, I remember that. No, but it is weird, this line that has to be crossed. Because you think you pull up to an undercover cop who's disguised as a prostitute, and you're like, hey, baby, how much? She's like, how much for what exactly would you like me to do, sir, for money? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if you if you pull up and say, "Hey, baby, I'll give you ten dollars to tickle my toes with a feather," and then that's it, you're trapped. You you just got caught. That's all it took. 
That's kind of how it works. Maybe. You know what? Not really. Fuck this Zionist government and their their oppressive views on feather tickling. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Subscribe to my newsletter, people. I'm just kidding. I don't believe the government's Zionist. I don't want to say that. That's it's kind of racist. Anyway. Regardless, two days later, Randy brought Fadale two sawed-off shotguns and sold them for 450 U.S. dollars. Which in 1990, it's like 8,000 billion trillion dollars. Math works out. Yep. Yep. In March of 1990, Area Nation figured out that Gus was a government spy and kicked them out. The ATF needed a new spy, so they rolled up to Randy Weaver and said, Hey man, you can go to jail for this gun charge, or you can be a snitch and get free candy and stuff. Randy listened to their pitch and screamed, You can go to hell! A warrant was issued for Randy's arrest. In January of 1991, Randy was driving into town with Vicky when he stopped to help a stranded motorist. Suddenly, federal agents jumped out of the stranded motorist's truck and arrested Randy for the weapons charge. Gotcha! Ha-ha! they finger guns because of ATF. Okay, I was going to say, they weren't real guns that were discharged. They were finger guns, heavily regulated finger guns because they're the ATF. <laughs> <laughs> they had to measure the barrels on them yeah. just to make sure they were precise. It only has 10 rounds, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> he was taken before a judge and given a $10,000 bond and a court date of February the 20th. The judge incorrectly told Randy that if he lost his case, he'd have to pay the $10,000 or would lose his house as collateral. For those that don't know how bonds work, like once you show up and you go to court, you get that back. Yeah. Regardless. Yeah, he fucked, this judge really fucked this up. Like if he had, he'd known this shit, like if he'd come forward and said, yeah, it's 10000 bucks, but if you show up, you don't have to pay shit, Randy would have probably shown up for court, but he doesn't. He'd also have to give up all his guns, because that's felony and felons can't own guns. Randy didn't have $10,000 and knew he'd lose his case, so he said fuck court and decided that he wasn't ever coming back down the mountain and they could pry his guns from his cold, dead hands. Randy went back home to Ruby Ridge. Later that year, Vicky became pregnant and gave birth to their fourth child and third daughter, Elishaba. You know that sex, sex was just fantastic. That's fugitive sex. A, baby, this might be our last night together, so let's make this the most memorable eight minutes of your life. That Bonnie and Clyde butt-fucking. Oh, yeah. Well, not butt-fucking, because they made a baby. Do you need me to take you inside and give you the anatomy lesson, Gregory? Well, no, you just pull out at the last minute and, <laughs> you know, put it where it's supposed to go. That's how yeast infections happen, by the way. Well, sure. <laughs> but the sin is what, you know, uh, okay. really shoots it deep into that potato I got you I got you. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yes. The excitement. <laughs> excitement of sin. <laughs> well, at the same time, Kevin Harris moved back in. To survive, the family relied on friends to pick up and deliver groceries and supplies. After the ATF stranded vehicle Trojan Horse in January, Randy didn't trust any strangers and he never left the fucking mountain. No matter how much free candy was in their fucking van. <laughs> A failure-to-appear warrant was issued, and U.S. Marshal Dave Hunt was given the case. Over the following year, Hunt would try to peacefully settle the issue by contacting Randy's friends and family to try and convince him to turn himself in. Hunt studied Weaver and determined that Randy was a paranoid guy who was lazy and a coward whose wife controlled his existence. <laughs> it's just me. It's fine. <laughs> he also noted that Randy was sociable, 
wanted to be liked, and that despite Randy's special forces training, Randy posed no real threat of violence. That's me as well, ex <laughs> except for the social part. <laughs> In fact, Hunt didn't care if Weaver came down at all. As far as he was concerned, Randy had built his own prison on Ruby Ridge. However, in the summer of 1992, Hunt caved to pressure to make an arrest and called in the Marshal's Special Operations Group to assist. A reporter had found out about the Weaver case and the story had gone national. News helicopters began to circle the cabin to try and get a glimpse of Randy. Yeah, fun story here. Uh, Geraldo Rivera starts circling the cabin and Randy steps outside and gives him the double bird, flips him off. And then somehow that turns into Geraldo reporting that Randy had stepped out and shot at him. And Randy contacted the, the paper, and I guess I'm going to have to do the fake voice for this, too. He's like, the only thing I shot at old Jurado was the bird. I did not know that. Yeah, their, their fun way of, in, uh, of insulting someone is just to replace some syllable of their name with the word Jew. I mean, Geraldo Rivera is a piece of shit journalist. A absolutely. Yeah, he got kicked out of Iraq. Remember that? Yeah, for showing their position yeah, and their on a fucking map drawn on the sand. Yeah, and their plan of attack and shit. <laughs> Dude, fuck that guy. His mustache is glorious, though. I'd like to sit on it. That's all I'm saying. Fuck that guy. Ah, yeah, that's the dream. Well, the special operations group set up surveillance gear and planned to try to trick Randy into coming outside by sending in an undercover agent posing as a man who had just bought neighboring land. On August 21st, 1992... The special operations group moved into the woods to observe the operations. That's when things got immediately better, and uh, the story's over. Everybody came to their senses. The end. <laughs> Yay! We did oh, I'm it. I'm sorry, I, re I read that wrong. Okay. That's when things went to shit. Oh. Uh, common misconception. Understandable. Okay. They're, yeah, they're I, close. They're I, close. I, yeah, they're I close. forgive you for that mistake. Speaking of, that's when things went to shit. It's time for a break, Greg. Oh, boy. Don't drink, Mal. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have some more drinks on the toilet. That's where I keep my booze, my secret stash. My wife says I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> what an idiot. She'll never find the stuff I have stashed in the upper tank because she doesn't listen to this podcast. All right, welcome back from break, Greg. How are things there at the abandoned Denny's with Wolf Dick? How was that? Cold, but otherwise we're good. Cold. It's weird considering it's June, but, you know, are you talking about, like, emotionally between you two? No, we took a bunch of drugs and we're shivering. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. That'll be good for the back half of this show. Uh, I want to hear some drugged out Wolf Dick sounds. Hey, sound back effects. half is my favorite. <laughs> back half can't talk back. That's what I'm saying. Whoa. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we got a long ways to go, so let's just get into this. When we left you, Randy Weaver and his wife, Vicky, and their children had moved to a small cabin in uh, Ruby Ridge, which was overlooking the town of Naples, Idaho. Very remote, very reclusive. But Randy had sold some sawed-off shotguns to the government to an undercover agent for the ATF. He may or may not have been entrapped. We will never know. But either way, he had sold the guns, and they had issued a warrant for his arrest. 
spent a better part of a year trying to convince him to turn himself in peacefully, but now it was go time. The U.S. Marshals were sending their special operations group to the mountains to try and take down Randy Weaver. Let's get him, boys. Yeah. I hope his name also describes how he is in bed. Randy. Oh, Weaver. <laughs> yeah, he's, he had so much pubic hair that he just, like, wove it into weaves. Yeah, it's a fucking pot holder thing. <laughs> a little fucking thingy. <laughs> <laughs> I've made you a coaster. No, you can't take it. It's part of me, but it's a coaster. <laughs> you can set your drink down there while you're filleting me. <laughs> well, on the morning of Friday, August 21st, 1992, six U.S. Marshals moved into the woods around the Weaver cabin. They were armed with M16 rifles and suppressed 9mm submachine guns. The Weavers had a sweet, innocent Labrador retriever named Stryker. According to the marshals, they threw a couple rocks near the dog to see how it would react. Later, both the Weavers and the U.S. Marshals would say a neighbor further down the mountain had started their car. Either way, Stryker was curious and set off into the woods. He's just this tiny little puppy. So got the bow around his neck from Christmas. He's still in the basket, like the basket's hopping down the road. Mm. Puppy breath. Yeah. Cat hasn't even opened his poor little eyes yet. He's just squinting. <laughs> yeah. Just looking for that teat. Well, after that sweet, innocent Christmas puppy took off down the road, Randy, his 14-year-old son Sam, and the homeless kid they had taken in, Kevin Harris, followed after Stryker. The Weavers had run out of meat and were hoping the dog was leading them to some game. Maybe chess, checkers, who knows? We'll find it eventually. Milf at the jazz bar. Mm-hmm. They can lay their game down. Oh, they can. And you can smell them from a mile away. See who got to uh, bring them back up to the minstrel cabin. <laughs> Randy was carrying a shotgun and walked along a ridge above Stryker. Down below, Kevin and Sam followed the dog. Kevin carried a .30-06 hunting rifle. Sam had a .223 rifle and a .357 pistol. But instead of striking a delicious deer or, you know, a milf or whatever, Stryker had caught scent of the feds. And they smelled like shit. <laughs> smelled like pig. Mmm, he's gonna get some bacon. Some federal bacon. <laughs> Federal bacon. <laughs> Combine that with some government cheese. Mm, make a delicious sandwich. It really would. U.S. Marshal Larry Cooper later testified that he, Art Roderick, and Bill Deegan were attempting to hide when they spotted Randy above them and Kevin and Sam coming right for them. Believing it was an ambush, Deegan jumped out from behind cover and shouted, Back off, U.S. Marshal! Kevin Harris raised his rifle and shot Deegan in the chest before Deegan could fire around. Cooper returned fire at Harris and hit him, dropping him like, quote, a sack of potatoes. Art Roderick shot and killed poor sweet, but, uh, you know, let's be honest, probably racist, Stryker. I'm pretty sure he was racist. Yeah, he's hated to be a racist. He's raised by racists. Yeah. He didn't know any better. Oh, he was old enough to form his own dog opinions. Yeah. Oh, he's barking at the black mailman. Piece of shit. Eventually you gotta grow up. You know? <laughs> no, do you? Don't matter where you're from, it matters how you come. And right. I come violently. Mm. Violently. <laughs> it's, it's 
only made better by the fact you're staring me in my virtual eyes right now. Just I will not elaborate. Continue, please. <laughs> okay. Sam Weaver fired at the man who killed his dog and shouted, You son of a bitch! Did his, his voice cracked while he did it. It's very accurate, then. He was also unclear if he was talking to Deegan, or I mean Roderick, who shot his dog, or if he's actually talking to Stryker, because technically Stryker was the son of a bitch. You're not wrong. Yep. But that's the best kind of right. <laughs> Cooper fired wildly into the woods. Sam took off running. Cooper then moved to Deegan and felt for a pulse, but U.S. Marshal Bill Deegan was dead. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> Your fake laugh made me real laugh. <laughs> well, now that was the Marshall story, and it would actually change when some physical evidence was later discovered, but we'll get into that in a second. Here's what Kevin Harris said had happened. According to Harris, they were walking behind Stryker when Art Roderick, likely afraid the dog was going to reveal their position, Shot Striker to keep him quiet. This dog ain't testifying. He ain't gonna give it up. <laughs> he ain't gonna make it to the stand, see? <laughs> At that point, Sam was super pissy that someone had shot and killed his dog, and he shouted, You son of a bitch! And opened fire on the marshals. Bill Deegan returned fire and struck Sam in the arm. Kevin Harris saw this and fired his rifle at Deegan and hit Deegan with a fatal wound to his chest. Both Harris and Sam then took off running for the cabin, but Sam was shot in the back and killed. Well, the order of events might never be fully explained, so it's not entirely possible to know who shot at who first. I think Han shot first, by the way. But of the two accounts, the government story is by far the less likely story. First, Cooper said he had shot and dropped Harris, but Kevin wasn't wounded at all during this exchange of gunfire. Ballistics would later show that Roderick had indeed killed Stryker, they would also show that the round that killed Sam Weaver as he ran away was fired by Larry Cooper's 9mm submachine gun. And Cooper's story that Bill Deegan had been shot in the chest before firing a shot proved to be completely false. Deegan had fired seven times before he was killed by Kevin Harris. An honest misunderstanding. Yeah. I don't know. Seven? Zero? Eh, whatever. Seven very loud things coming from one of my ears. Yeah. No, it's... Ah, yeah. Yeah, you know. Or none. He's a trained professional. He's not going to hear gunshots. Come on. <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> Either way, both Sam Weaver and U.S. Marshal Bill Deegan were dead. U.S. Marshal Dave Hunt ran down the road to a neighbor's house and began to make frantic calls back to headquarters. And before any of you cucks say that, oh, well, it was an, a suppressed 9mm. Yeah, if you've ever heard suppressed gunfire, it's still fucking loud. Yeah. It's just hearing safe, meaning you don't need, like, headphones or earplugs for it. Right. It's still loud. You're going to hear it from, fuck, a hundred feet away. Right. You know, and this dude's right next to him, so it was loud. Just before we get any of the uh, the cuck emails, let's <laughs> get ahead of that. No, but you're right. The most quiet you can make a gun is take a twenty two, suppress it, and use subsonic ammo, and it's still pretty fucking loud. So, you know, a nine millimeter, which is much larger than a twenty two, suppressed, yeah, it's it's still gonna make a lot of fucking noise. Yes. And Bill Deegan was actually using a five five six M sixteen. So it's gonna be really fucking loud. You're gonna hear seven shots from a fucking M sixteen. Oh yeah. He was just trying to cover for his buddy. 
Yeah, and, and Larry Cooper was using the uh, suppressed right. nine mil. The one that killed Sam Weaver. Yeah. So there's no excuse for this. I was like, uh, maybe the uh, the gunfire all blended together. No, it did not. You knew who was firing what, yeah. Well, throughout the day, Hunt would talk to several officials and tell them that his agents were trapped in the woods around the cabin. This would lead most people at the Justice Department to believe that the firefight was still ongoing that the marshals were still pinned down by gunfire. This misconception would lead to a fucked-up decision and even more fucked-up consequences. Kevin Harris made it back to the cabin and told Randy, Vicky, and the girls that Sam was dead. The family lost their shit and fired their guns into the air repeatedly. Just straight in the air. I imagine a animated movie mm-hmm. where, like, uh, you got the anthropomorphized animals that are all speaking English to one another, mm-hmm. you know, lions or wolves or whatever, and they come deliver this news, and it's like, oh, fucking, you, Jimmy got whatever down there, and then they all just start howling, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like they turn back into animals, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's how I imagine the weavers, like, that's their just natural mating call or whatever, they're just, what, what happened? Oh, yeah, Sam, Sam's dead. <laughs> I like I like two things about this. I like that the idea uh, that these racist white nationalists mating calls just gunfire into the fucking air. Makes sense. I also like the idea, and we should pitch this to Pixar, of a animal-based cartoon version of Ruby Ridge. Oh, they're the heroes the whole time, and then it's, like, revealed at the end who they all represented. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Well. Oh. Yeah, that fox hated ducks. Hated them. (laughs) (laughs) The ducks control the government. (laughs) Let me just unhitch my wagon from this train. That's a plot twist for you. Movie is sponsored by the Aryan Nation. <laughs> I was wondering how we were going to make jokes in this section, and here we are. We've done it. Where the fuck was I? Jokes find a way. The family walked down the trail and found Sam's body. <laughs> jokes, right, guys? <laughs> Yay! Anyway, go ahead. They brought him back to the menstruation shack, cleaned his body, and covered him with a sheet. Because he was bloody. You got to put him in the house while he's bleeding. The menstruation shack. Yeah. That's where blood happens. So. Yeah, that's where you go while you're bleeding. It only makes sense. Yeah. yeah. They covered him in sheet. Oh, with, with a sheet? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, and a hood, was, a little hood, and the eyes cut out. Thought it was somebody with an accent saying <laughs> shit on him. We really should be careful joking about 15-year-olds being murdered, because that's most of our audience. So we should really pander <laughs> to them. <laughs> oh, Jesus. It took all day for the marshals to come down from the mountain. The storm blew in, making the trails muddy and slippery, and it was near impossible. Damn it! Didn't want to do that again. Skibbity bop. Shibbity doop doop. I'm a scat man. Skibbity doop 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 doop. I'm a scat man. I went all over Sam's body in the menstruation shack. Scat man. Covered him with sheet and uh. Administration check. <laughs> oh, oh no. 
A storm blew in, making the trails muddy and slippery, and it was near impossible for them to carry the 200-plus pound body of Bill Deegan. Eventually, they made it back down into the condominium where they had been staying the night before. Meanwhile, the Justice Department decided to send in the highly trained, well-equipped FBI hostage rescue team. As the FBI agents were on their way, the directors of the FBI, believing the marshals were still under fire, made a drastic change to the rules of engagement. The standard rule stated that an agent could only use deadly force if he could articulate that his or another person's life was in immediate danger, and warning had to be given when possible. The new rules said that agents could shoot and kill any adult seen carrying a weapon. The children still had to be warned. Listen here, you little shit. (laughs) Oh, you're not listening? Boom. Mm -hmm. That'll show you. I'm a hero! Where's my medal? (laughs) Well, the thing is, the Weavers always carried weapons, even when they were just hanging out on their own property and going to the menstruation shack. Just gonna go fucking... You know, fire off a few so I'm going to go sniff around in there, see what's going on. Eh? Ah, see? <laughs> We're the weavers, eh? We don't yeah. take no shit. We, we only take the blood. Say? <laughs> don't take no You know, because it's a menstruation shit. <laughs> I'm the, sorry, say? Continue with the story. Until the scat man shows up, say? <laughs> <laughs> well, with them carrying guns wherever they went... And these new rules of engagement, what could possibly go wrong? Nothing. End of story. See you later. Nothing at all. On Saturday, August 22nd, the FBI arrived in full force. Their hostage rescue team consisted of 50 members and, for the first time in FBI history, every single one is being deployed to a single incident. Which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. There are, what, three adults at this point in this cabin? Yeah. And they have 50 fucking... Their entire hostage rescue team is now located 50 miles from the border of Canada in Idaho. Yeah. So what if something happens anywhere else? (laughs) This is so fucking stupid. It's like, this is the classic folly with over-enforcement. Yeah. Is these people sit around and they have nothing to fucking do. So when something pops off... Man, we, let's just fire jobs. Everybody's fucking going. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a lot next week with the let's just oh, definitely. justify our existence type thing. Yes. So I go back and forth on this one because, you know, when you look at it, Randy Weaver, his charge was very, very small. You know, sawing off a shotgun and selling it. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a... Albeit a felony is almost the weakest of felonies. Yeah. It's so stupid. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, in their minds, you know, it's been like 12 hours, and, and the story they're getting is that this dude just randomly fucking shot and killed a U.S. Marshal. And so, yeah, you base that, and they're separatists, they're racists, so you're building this image in your mind that's not true at all, that's not the accurate depiction of Randy Weaver and his family. They basically, they were racist piece of shits, but they just wanted to be left the fuck alone. They weren't actually trying to overthrow the government or anything like that. But in the FBI and the ATF and the the mind of the U.S. Marshals, these guys were, you know, the type that wanted to overthrow the Zionist government and take over the world and all that shit. So we're coming in full force, baby. You killed one of ours, we're coming to fucking get you. Right. Well, the FBI rolled up in armored personnel carriers and began their briefing. Remember when we said that the new rules of engagement said that an agent, quote unquote, can shoot any armed adult? 
Well, that morning, they scratched out can and changed it to can and should shoot any armed adult. They also decided they didn't need any help or information from the U.S. Marshals, so Dave Hunt and his crew packed up and headed to Boston to bury Bill Deegan. And this is a big issue for me. These guys have been dealing with Randy Weaver and his family for a year. You know, uh, Dave Hunt has been trying for a year to get this guy to surrender peacefully. He knows more about Randy Weaver than anybody else, and they're like, all right, <laughs> okay, thanks for your service. Get the fuck out. We got this. Man, these FBI rules of engagement keep a changing. Pretty soon they're going to be like scratch marks through the scratch marks, and the rules will just read like kill weavers in all caps. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Just line through, then a line through that, line through that. Kill weavers. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, man. It won't. It won't even be letters. It'll be a little sound file you got to click on. <laughs> There'll be somebody go, Kill Weavers! Like a metal guitar riff in the background. Kill Weavers! It's the fuck. It's getting them all psyched up. And they're like, yeah! Fuck yeah! And they just snort a line of coke off the, the APC and just go out there. <laughs> well, the FBI plan was to drive the APCs up to the cabin and try and negotiate a surrender. Meanwhile, the hills around the cabin would be chock full of FBI snipers that could shoot the Weavers if they decided to come outside. And that's all it fucking took. Come outside with your gun, motherfucker. End of story. We'll see you next week. If they didn't come out after two days, it was tear gas time. Send it in, fellas. Well, Deputy Assistant Director Danny Colson would later say when he read the plan, his first thought was, quote, These dumb shits. End quote. He decided the arbitrary two-day time limit to negotiations would be thrown out. He also claimed he never saw the second page of the plan, which clearly stated the new, wild-ass rules of engagement. And that probably wouldn't matter. Probably won't come into effect. We've only mentioned it like ten times. Not a big deal. Yeah, I, there's no way this story keeps going down on its current trajectory. I don't believe Danny Coulson, by the way. No? Maybe it's just a difference in personality. When I'm reading something stupid, like ridiculously stupid that someone's presented to me as a, a suggestion, I keep reading just to see all the stupid shit they've said. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, I finished one page and this is the dumbest shit I've ever read. I'm not even going to bother to read what you wrote on the second page. But that's how Danny Colson apparently operated. Let's put it in Greg's hands. I hand you a two-page plan of action. And it says, we're going to promote HPH, Hunter Proof History by mailing out cabbages with HPH written on the side of them. You're like, well, that's fucking stupid. Do you read page two to see what else I've come up with, or do you are you done? No, I'm Danny Coulson. I'm done. <laughs> You're done. That's it. Like, this is the dumbest fucking shit I've ever read. I'm not even going to bother continuing. It's 40 more words, but no. No. My, right. time, my time is worth more than those stupid fucking words that are sure on the second page. But like all the emails we get, just, ugh. <laughs> the drivel. The drivel from the eight-year-olds. I just send it all your way, you summarize it, and then send me back a single email a day that summarizes all of those things. So that's what I would do. At that point, I would be like, ugh, to, to the co-host you go. <laughs> hey, eight-year-olds, you keep sending me those messages. I will respond to every one of them. I love you, eight-year-olds. Nope. 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 <laughs> you can't say that, Chris. <laughs> platonically we're we're just into the same things that's all i'm saying we're the same kinks <laughs> no 
Well, the snipers moved into position in the hills. At the position designated Sierra 4 was a well-respected sniper named Lon Horiuchi. Lon was a West Point graduate and had made the hostage rescue team unit after only two years as an agent. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Thank you for your contribution, Chris. Yeah, it's impressive. Okay. Mm, what are you, a fucking hype man on a rap stage? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Listen, you're Biggie Smalls. I'm Sean Puff Caddy, Puff Daddy Combs. Puff Caddy. Puff Caddy. I carry. <laughs> <laughs> you just carried around golf clubs. Yeah. Oh. I, I, I carry B, Biggie's fucking golf clubs around because that's who I am. And it's like, just give me $5. It's fine. You're also a fluffer on a porn set. Oh, yeah. I would do that for free. You blow so well, they call you Puff. <laughs> Puff Caddy. Yeah, because I also, not only do I blow. So, well, I also carry your wood for you. Get it? Hey. <laughs> Stupid. After starting off on an assault team, Horiuchi became a sniper and was known as one of the best shots in the entire unit. The Weaver's teenage daughter, Sarah, came out of the house first to see if the coast was clear. When she didn't see any feds, she called out to Randy and Kevin. Both men came out carrying rifles. Randy walked to the menstruation hut to look at his dead son, Maybe the funniest sentence I've ever said, <laughs> unintentionally, by the way. Hey, you're still menstruating in there? Nope, still dead. Okay, moving on. Sorry. <laughs> Mr. Weaver, He, yeah, so he went out to the hut behind the house, <laughs> looked at his dead son, unaware that Lon Horiuchi was watching through a rifle scope 200 yards away. The sniper fired. The bullet tore through Randy's shoulder and exited through his armpit. Sarah, Randy, and Kevin sprinted back towards the cabin. Vicky Weaver stepped outside, holding 10-month-old Elisheba to see what was happening. The open cabin door swung outward and stood between Vicky and Lon Horiuchi, the sniper. As Kevin ran behind the door, Lon fired again. This round flew through the glass window of the door, hit Vicky in the face, and then continued into the shoulder of Kevin Harris. Vicky was killed instantly. The 308 rifle round carried enough force that her jawbone was turned into shrapnel had embedded into the face and chest of Kevin Harris. Jesus. I, I don't remember what episode we talked about this. Maybe it was the uh, Patreon exclusive now uh, Munich series, Operation Wrath of God, where we were talking about the rules of gunfire, gun rules, gun safety rules, where you should be aware of your target and background at all times. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much any military force's rules of engagement, right? You should know what your target is and, and what's behind your target. Apparently not, because Lon Harichi saw Kevin Harris allegedly fly behind the door, and he's like, ah, he's probably there. Pow! You know? Fires through mm -hmm. this fucking wooden door and just decimates the face of Vicky Weaver. Just blows her ra racist cranium. Wooden door with a glass window where she was standing. Well, according to him, there are curtains that are blocking We'll his, get into that. Yeah. According to him, we'll but, into that. but uh, yeah, he might be full of shit. He's full of shit. Spoiler alert. <laughs> what followed was a nine-day standoff in which Randy Weaver refused to respond to the FBI negotiators with any more than an occasional shout of, Get the fuck out of here! Because of Horiuchi's obstructed view and the lack of communication, the FBI had no idea 
the Wiki Weaver was dead. You said Wiki Weaver. Wiki Weaver. Wiki 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 Weaver. Wild Weaver. Desperado. Yeah. The FBI had no idea that Vicky Weaver was dead. They believed not only that she was alive, but also she was the one in charge. So they'd use their loudspeaker to talk to Vicky, saying things like, We had pancakes for breakfast out here. What did you have for breakfast, Vicky? Why don't you send the children out for some pancakes, Mrs. Weaver? So you can only fucking imagine inside yeah. <laughs> what Randy's thinking. Yeah. Like hey. they're fucking taunting me. You know what my favorite activity is, Miss Weaver? Breathing. Why don't you come out here and breathe some air, Miss Weaver? Oh, we had no idea. <laughs> Inside the cabin, the family believed that the snipers don't miss, and the FBI knew exactly how dead Vicky really was. They were taunting the Weavers, and their worst fears had come true. The government was going to kill them all one by one. They had no intention of coming out to be slaughtered. On the 11th day of the confrontation and the 10th day of FBI involvement, the FBI was ready to storm the cabin when they finally had a breakthrough. About a mile away at a roadblock, far right-wing sympathizers had arrived to protest the government and what they perceived to be a violation of the Constitution. Which, I'm no far right-wing guy, and I don't agree. Uh, let me just get this on record, recorded record. I don't agree with these white supremacists. But I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, you have a right to due process, and they kind of skipped over that fucking part during this uh, whole situation. Oh, 100%. And that's the thing, and maybe we'll talk about it towards the conclusion of the story. The Weavers were pieces of shit. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have the same constitutional rights as everybody else. Right, yeah. Well, one of the leaders of this protest was a decorated lieutenant colonel turned super far-right racist politician by the name of Bo Greitz. And it, uh, by the way, it rhymes with whites. That was his uh, catchphrase. Yeah. Vote for me. Rhymes with whites. <sighs> I know. Yeah, he fucking ran for president in like, what, 92? Yeah, he, he got like, he got less votes than Randy Weaver did for sheriff. Like he, <laughs> no one voted for this jackass. But yeah, no, he, he was a big, kind of a piece of shit. big figure in the far right white supremacist community. Well, when his name was brought up, Randy knew him and agreed to talk with him. Inside the cabin, Kevin Harris was in bad shape and Randy was ready to surrender so that Kevin could get help and so his daughters wouldn't get hurt. His oldest daughter, 16-year-old Sarah, refused to let Randy surrender until Bo Greit showed up and told Randy to be a man for once. Yeah, this guy's, we talk about cucks, this guy's a cuck. His 16-year-old daughter's like, no, we're not going up there. And Randy's like... Uh, she's probably listen right. here, you little bitch, Dad. Yeah, and he's probably he's like, yes, dear, yes, your mother's dead. You're the new mother. Mm. Let me stomp on your balls, Dad. Yeah, and eventually, Bogrides is like, are you a fucking man? Are you in charge of this household? Are you her father? And he's like, okay, all right, you're right, buddy. You tell me what to do. You're the new Vicky Bogrides. <laughs> <laughs> I now serve you, Bogrides, cuck lord. <laughs> Well, Randy surrendered, and both he and Kevin Harris were placed under arrest. The case went to trial in early February of 1993. The prosecutor made a huge mistake when he decided to charge Randy and Kevin with conspiracy to attack the U.S. government. Had he simply charged Randy with the sawed-off shotgun charge and Kevin with the killing of U.S. Marshal Bill Deegan, he would have gotten easy guilty verdicts. 
but conspiracy was a broad charge that meant he had to prove a certain mindset. It also allowed Randy and Kevin's superstar defense team an opportunity to call into question the federal account of what happened. Yeah, so this will be my my moment to tell you, take a break after this podcast, after this episode, and read Ruby Ridge by Jess Walter, because right here is where he breaks down the whole prosecution defense thing, and you can see how this is like an OJ, uh, what's that chick who killed her kid in Florida? Casey Anthony. Yeah, it's it's that kind of defense where they just throw out so much shit that the jurors are are overwhelmed by the the facts and the and the emotion of the case that uh, it it causes lots of problems. And if he just like you said, if he just gone for the straight provable charges, these guys are in jail. Another big issue for the prosecution was the fact that the FBI had zero interest in cooperating. They hid documents from the prosecution and defense to cover up their poor planning and the ridiculous change in rules of engagement. Federal agents committed obvious perjury to defend the initial story they told on the first day of the standoff. Lon Horiuchi would testify that a curtain hung in the glass of the door, so he didn't know Vicky was there. He'd also testify that the rules of engagement didn't matter because he believed Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris had been aiming at an FBI helicopter when he fired. Of course, a day after his testimony, the prosecution received a picture drawn by Horiuchi on the day of the shooting that depicted the cabin door with two heads visible through the glass window. So, yeah, he drew it on a little, you go to a hotel and they got the little pad by the phone. He drew it on that with two heads showing in the window. The FBI had this and they sent it to the prosecution. They sent it fourth class mail, which is that a thing anymore? Fourth class mail? Never heard of it. So, basically, it was the slowest form of mail at the time in 1992. It took them four fucking weeks from the time they sent it to the time the prosecution received it. And this poor fucking prosecutor had to go to the judge and to the defense. It's like, oh, hey, I know this guy just testified that he couldn't see shit, but uh, here's this picture he drew the day of that shows he could see two heads. And he just picked fucking one of them and blew the fucking brains out of them. Uh I don't trust our government anymore, Greg. Oh, you did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Neat. Well, it's it's hard because we just did an episode on why conspiracies are bullshit. The government's not out to get you. It was, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone, firing these shots, and we explained how this was an easy shot for anybody. And now we're having to explain Okay, this fucking dipshit FBI sniper missed two times. He didn't hit his target twice. He hit some dude in the shoulder and hit blew out some lady's face when he's trying to shoot somebody else. And it's like, it's kind of incongruous. But uh, you know what, uh, listener who said, oh, yeah, we can trust our government. I've, I've swung around to your way of thinking. We can't trust anybody. Or maybe the world's not black and white. No, no, world's black and white, play the X-Files theme, you can't trust your government. Thank you. Randy Weaver was found guilty of only failing to appear for his initial hearing and sentenced to 18 months in jail. Kevin Harris was acquitted of all charges. In the later years, both men would receive large settlements from the U.S. government. 
The Weaver girls would return to mainstream society and would go on to have normal, quiet lives. As far as the FBI went, a few agents were reassigned or given minor suspensions. In 1997, Lon Horiuchi would be charged with the manslaughter of Vicki Weaver, but the charges were dismissed before he was ever prosecuted. Fun fact, though. Lon Horiuchi? He will show up next week in our Waco episode. Because guess who was there during that whole incident? Now, if this tale of governmental incompetence makes you mad, you aren't alone. But don't worry. The federal government had learned its lesson. They wouldn't demonstrate ridiculously piss-poor planning and overly aggressive tactics for, let's see... A whole six months?! <laughs> After Ruby Ridge, when they learned of a religious group that was stockpiling weapons in the town of Waco, Texas. Home of Chip and Joe. And that is where we will pick up next week. With Chip and Joe. Let's do it. Fixer Upper. End of story. Are we going to do a Fixer Upper episode? Are we ever going to do address Fixer Upper? In the historical impact? Oh, he's tearing, up, he's tearing up his notes. Well, Gregory, it is time for Northern Idaho, almost Canada's favorite segment. Surprises slash misconceptions you might have had about this story. Take it away, main host. Yeah, my biggest uh, misconception with this story was that Randy Weaver is alive and well. Uh, yeah. You know, I knew he survived all of this. I don't know. I just figured he somehow made poor choices along the way and all yeah. that. But nope. I watched a documentary with him where, uh, man, I think it was 2000, 2001, something like that. And he, he was still alive and kicking then. He is yes. now. But at that time, he said, well. I mean, yeah, you can call me a racist. All racist means is, you know, being proud of your race or something yeah. like that. Just, oh, God. No, no. I still hate you. <laughs> you didn't learn anything. <laughs> Not that he needed to be taught a lesson by the federal government, because what they did was unquestionably wrong. Yes. So 100%. let's put that out there. Is a big thing that I, I see in our country today is a lot of people will stand up for the injustice of people they agree with, but not people they don't agree with. Yes. And that's not how it works. You have to stand up for the rights of everyone. Right. Not just this person or this person. Even if you disagree, even if this person is an extreme piece of shit, like I feel, and I believe you feel, the Weavers were, you still got to stand up for those rights if you expect to have them yourself. Yeah. So give me a second, because I know sometimes we go a little bit long on surprises, misconceptions. But speaking of that, everyone has constitutional rights. It doesn't matter if you're a huge piece of shit or you've been law-abiding for your whole life. And I am usually, I lean, I don't want to say I lean a little right, but I lean t more towards the federal government kind of knows what they're doing. They kind of have it figured out, but... In this situation, no. The federal government was all fucked up, and they took away somebody's due process. Uh, I do think in modern day, in, in these modern times, even though everyone wants to shit on law enforcement right now, I do think that this guy who is up on the mountain presents a danger to himself and others. 
they're kind of like, let's just wait till he comes off the mountain. Then we'll make this arrest. Then we'll prosecute the sawed off shotguns thing. But back then it was like, let's fucking go get him. He's up there. Let's just, we know where he is. Let's go find him. Let's arrest him. Let's put him in jail for this. Oh, one of his friends killed a federal agent. Now it's time to fucking, if he comes outside, he's dead. That's the end of it. And it's just complete bullshit from the, the federal government side of things. And I, like I said, I'm not a far-right, extremist, separatist, federal government always fucks things up. Or are you? Well, I will tell you they fuck things up in this case. No, that's a, that's a really good point, man. Now, as we have mentioned, this is kind of a three-parter in the sense that each of the next two stories this one included, so three stories, leads into the next. It's an escalating event, Mm -hmm. but they're all isolated incidences themselves. So tune in next week as we talk about the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. It'll be a good old down country town. Yeehaw! Yeah! All right, Gregory. I'm going to skip my own misconception slash surprise because... You nailed it. That was fantastic. Why don't you go ahead and take us home? Guys and gals, visit us at 100proofhistory.com. Check out our Patreon. Enter in the contest. That shit is free. You don't got to pay shit for that. You got a week left. But you do got to pay if you want those hangover episodes, those sweet, juicy, succulent hangover episodes every Monday. And I don't know if people are aware... When you do get in on this uh, HPH gang Patreon thing, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, proofers. Yeah, when you become a proofer, you get the entire back catalog of all of those episodes you've been missing. And very soon, Lincoln Assassination is going to disappear forever. Oh, I don't even mean that. Like the Hangover episodes. Oh, they're so good. They're so you know, much fun. We've done a bunch of, yeah, well, we've done a bunch of those because we record them after these and we're already fucked up. But when you do subscribe, you get the back catalog of all of those episodes. We do a lot of research for our main episodes. The Hangovers, man, that is some quick down and dirty getting in the fucking mud research. It's yeah. just real quick. It's like, all right, man, well, here's this story. Can and we kind of both peruse over it. And then yeah. it's like, all right, let's go. It's some Woodstock fucking. That's just, right. Just no condoms, baby. Hole is hole. Let's go. A lot of drugs, no condoms. <laughs> See you guys next time. Love you. You're frozen. You're frozen. Oh, you were frozen. You're frozen. Oh. Well, I didn't know if you had said something after there that I need to know about. <laughs> I'm gay. I respond. No, oh, well, did, I need to respond did to. that go through? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I, thought, I thought I could time the freezes. I thought I was Neo in the Matrix. <laughs> but no, I'm just Mio mm. in the gay tricks. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Woo! Having fun. What'd you just pop there? What'd you just pop open? A cherry, your mom's cherry. <laughs> it sounded very metallic. <laughs> it rebuilt like the six million dollar man. <laughs> Sam Weaver fired at the man who had killed his dog and sounded sounded sounded. What's he? What did he do? Fucking nine eleven or something? <laughs>
tiny whities and a mustache. That's that's my new goal. <laughs> oh, bad. <laughs> I'd rather suck a man's dick. Eventually, they made it back down. God damn it, I'm trying not to laugh now. Oh. <laughs> yeah, don't blame your puberty on laughs. I got, I got a pube. <laughs>